Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. Last month, we were joined by Dr. Frank Mitlerner, who overviewed the complex situation with greenhouse gases, the environment, and livestock production. It was clear from that discussion that this is a growing issue for global agriculture. And while the U.S. sheep industry has mostly flown under the radar to this point, that may not always be the case. Having accurate information and data regarding greenhouse gas production from our domestic industry will definitely be to our benefit into the future. With that said, we are following up that episode today by hearing the results of a project led by researchers from Michigan State University who have focused their scientific efforts specifically on the environmental footprint of sheep operations here in the United States. Doctors Richard Earhart and Aaron Rechtenwald actually were previous guests on the research update two years ago, just as they were getting started with this project, and we are fortunate to have them again today to hear about some of their outcomes. It's great to have the both of you back with us. Thanks a lot, Jake. It's nice to nice to be here, and we're glad to talk about this project and have a good discussion here today. Excellent. So, Dr. Hart, to get things started, can you remind our listeners about your early motivations for conducting this research project and provide us with some of the overarching information you hoped to learn? Sure thing. Well, um, really, if you look at this question, there's only been a few studies that have been done globally about greenhouse gases in sheep, and most of them have been in you know, parts of the world where, you know, sheep production is like a, a huge economic force, like in New Zealand, Australia, and the United Kingdom, um, they have pretty different production practices than what we have. And there was a study done in California, which did a really nice job, but, you know, it was pretty focused on, on case studies of farms there. And, you know, so uh, we, and actually the American Lamb Board was the primary funding agency for this project. We're really interested in seeing what's happening in the U.S. because we have, if anything, a more diverse sheep and goat production systems. If you think about it, you know, we have farms that are, you know, quite a few, a significant amount of industry as range operations. Some are more just extensive grazing throughout different parts of the country. And then we have some more intensive farms that, you know, have very different production practices and Given this diversity, we felt we really needed to see to, to to examine this here in the United States and look at the range of emissions that are present and compare how they differ in their in, in their total amount and also where they're coming from. Um, there's different sources of emissions, and we felt you know this would be a nice uh, examination that maybe the rest of the world could also use, not just the United States, to look at this kind of diversity that we have here. Sure. Okay, Dr. Rechtenwald, last month, as I mentioned, we had an exceptional description of of greenhouse gases and and kind of the complexity of uh, the emissions from animal agriculture. When you were preparing this research project, what did you find in regard to greenhouse gas emissions estimates from sheep elsewhere in the world? Well, there have been quite a few studies um conducted over the last decade or so in, like Richard was saying, the more sheep-intense areas of the globe, like New Zealand, Australia, that showed a range of values on sheep operations. Um, generally, emissions range from about 6 to 20 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of lamb 
and the CO2 equivalent is, is of all the greenhouse gases it standardizes in terms of CO2. Um, so New Zealand and Australia typically had reported values more on the lower end of that range. Um, that's partially due to the emissions of those being allocated to wool production, like 30% of there. So um, that reduced the emissions due to meat production specifically. Uh, there were also some comparisons that were done between like lowland and hill production um, in, in the UK, which showed that high production, really efficient systems had lower emissions. And that was mainly because more lamb were being produced by fewer animals more quickly. So essentially, it's just productively efficient, which then reduced the enteric methane and, and other um, greenhouse gases because it spread out those inputs over more lamb that was leaving the farm. Um, also in that case study, uh, the five case studies done in California um, showed that you know, having diverse operation goals also factored into those actual emission values at the end, because if you sell small versus large lamb, you get a big difference in emissions because um, the total farm greenhouse gases are divided by the amount of product. So like when you sell a lightweight lamb, um, that would increase the emissions value because you have a lot more emissions per a small amount of lamb that's leaving. Um, that wouldn't mean that the farm is less efficient, but it just depends on how the values are calculated. So some of that stuff is important to consider. Um, also, it's you know why New Zealand and Australia have really low values is also because they, they take out wool production and that can be done by other studies as well. But it just depends on if, if that emissions are accounted for in meat or wool and then like how that's calculated as well. That are some of the little differences as well. Sure. It sounds like there's a, a lot of ways to approach it. But mm -hmm. this research, research, as you mentioned, is pretty novel to the U.S. sheep industry. What were some of the challenges that you faced when designing this project um, that are either unique to sheep or unique to the U.S. industry? Yeah, so I think kind of alluded to this before, um, but really the challenge is, you know, how do we define the U.S. sheep industry? Um, and, you know, that was kind of like, how do we categorize it? And that was a little bit of a challenge for us. Um, you know, you could come up with a whole lot of subclasses. So we thought, you know, let's just do our best to try to broadly describe. So we broke it down into four different groups. And that kind of made sense to us based on like land use, productivity, um, to a certain extent, region, although that wasn't absolute. So these would include intensive operations that would have like really productive, prolific type sheep. Um, they're mostly housed indoors and they're mostly based on harvested forages instead of grazing. Then we had another category we called intensive grazing. We're also using um, similar genetics that were highly prolific, but they're grazing, okay? They're not um, focused on much indoor production. So that's two. The third would be what we called extensive grazing operations were housed, housed outdoors and had lower prolificacy, um, but didn't really fit the range category because there's quite a few. Um, and then we had range operations, which, you know, typically would have animals um, moving f based on weather and vegetation and season, um, which also had lower prolificacy, but we're, you know, not grazing, uh, we're grazing like in the mountains and more of a, what people call a transhuman um, system. 
So basically those four, um, and that was a challenge to like make everyone fit into those, but that's, that's what we came up with. And we feel like these were pretty distinctly different categories. Sure. Well, I'm really excited to, to hear the results uh, of this study. Can you go ahead and, and jump into some of the findings on uh, production and, and production efficiency across the various operation environments that you just described? Yeah, sure. They vary a lot, as you could only imagine. Um, if you compare what we'll call the intensive, which would be intensive like house sheep and intensive graze versus what we'll call extensive, which would include range and extensive grazing, um, they varied in productivity from about 1.8 lambs per ewe per year for the intensive and for the extensive were around 1.1 which is pretty much what we see in our national averages. So we feel like we represented our industry pretty well, but they've varied a lot. So, um, you know, even though we're saying that was the average, there was a fair bit of variation within all of those. Um, they also varied a lot in housing, of course, from zero to 100%. Some animals weren't housed at all. Some were exclusively housed. And then also the amount of feed they purchased. So some of these would have a vast majority of their feed would be purchased. Some were mostly homegrown feeds and grazed. Uh, the lamb growth rates differed a lot as well. Um, and uh, so the more intensive operations, because they were feeding more concentrates throughout the whole growth cycle of these lambs, or they're supporting their ewes a little bit more with uh, supplemental nutrition. They're, these lambs were growing around three quarters of a pound per day on average. So it's a bit faster than the other lambs, which were marketed at like, higher ages uh, when they're older. Um, so I would say our results demonstrate that we, you know, got some pretty clear differences, um, and that was what we were looking for. Um, but yeah, saying that every single farm within these categories was exactly the same wouldn't be uh, very accurate either. But they tended to be pretty different according to category overall. Sure. So in the operations that had the higher or highest levels of efficiency, what were the, the greenhouse gas emissions and, and the sources of those emissions? Sure, Jake. Uh, we had uh, a range. Um, it wasn't a really wide range that we actually had. It was about 10 to 12 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of um, live weight that was sold. Um, the 10 being more of the intensive farms and the 12 being the extensive operations. Um, it's pretty consistent with other work that's been done that ranges. Uh, so there were like one or two points difference. So it sounds kind of tight, but it is still like a 20% difference between intensive and in extensive operations. Um, and then when we allocated some of those emissions to wool, it was about like 10 to 20% of the protein that was leaving the farm. So then that would lower the emissions by 10 or 20% on average. And doing that, we've got about nine to 10 um, kilos of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of live weight. Um, so it lowered the emissions a little bit. It definitely was on par with, with a lot of the global standards or, or work that's been published. Um, it was accepted in the extensive grading category. Uh, most of those were hair sheep, so the, that subtraction didn't happen. Um, in terms of where the emissions came from, um, the majority across these operations were um, enteric methane. Um, and that, again, is consistent with other published, published literature. Um, it was about 50 to 80 percent of total greenhouse gas emissions. Um, on the lower end were the intensive farms. They were closer to 50 percent or half of the emissions was enteric. 
methane, and the highest was on the ranges, which were mainly enteric methane. Um, a lot of the difference really has to do with um, enteric emissions are really are a result of this constant fermentation in the rumen of the animals. So the amount is kind of dictated by the number of animals and the number of days to produce the lamb itself, or really like how much feed is consumed, because that's kind of the basis of making that determination of enteric methane. Um, so it's it's kind of a matter of efficiency of um, production efficiency and how fast it, the lamb come are produced. A manure contributed about five to fifteen percent of the emissions. Um, the higher values in the intensive were in the intensive operations because there really is like an extra layer of emission that's possible when you're storing the manure rather than applying it directly to the field. Um, purchase feeds were also a pretty major contributor in the intensive operations. Um, it was about 20% of their greenhouse gases and five to 10% maybe in the other categories. So that really makes sense. And what we were describing it, they, they purchased the majority of their feed. So obviously more of their emissions would be allotted to purchases of feed coming in. Um, so how we also looked at fuel and electricity the emissions associated with that. And those were actually not significantly different across all the categories. So um, it wasn't that the intensive operations had more fuel or electricity um, than, than the ranges for human. Okay. Well, you mentioned, you know, purchase feeds there and it got me thinking, how do feedlots or the lamb feeding side of the industry, how does that fit into this whole picture? Yeah. So we did a separate analysis on, on feedlots. And basically the situation is that, you know, not all lambs are finished um, in feedlots. So we kind of had, so most of the range operations, all the range operations would have used feedlots. So we had to, so we use that as a separate analysis to kind of add on um, that dimension um, because like the intensive operations often finish lambs right, right to the end. Um, so um, that was kind of a separate component. And we found is um, that, you know, we, we're a little bit limited in some of the things we can say in feedlots because we don't know precisely what the impact of very different types of diets, the type of diets that we feed in the United States and our feedlots tend to be, have a reasonable amount of concentrate for a bit of corn or some kind of energy concentrate. Um, one of the challenges we have is like, we don't have a lot of good primary data on um, if greenhouse gases differ in sheep based on um, their enteric emission differs based on the, the feed source. It's kind of like a one, one, one figure that we use. So, but we did try to capture that. And I think we did add that to, we did add that to this analysis to give us like a total um, footprint for those range operations. So, you know, even like we looked at them, not only did they, when they sold the lambs as feeder lambs, but then what, what the additional change would be in, emissions if they sold them as fat lambs, including that feedlot component. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Erin, to that? Yeah, in terms of the actual numbers that we got with those is um, there was about eight kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of lamb that was leading the feedlots. So, um, you know, it looks a lot more efficient um, and, and it is, but it doesn't actually it's because it's not quite the same operation. It's 
it's not quite a fair comparison to make directly um, because you don't have all the overhead of the maternal flock in there and then ewes that are left to produce. Um, so what we did was we actually combined the emissions associated with the range flocks, which were selling like 42 kilogram lamb. And then we calculated out what would happen if then those lambs were brought to feedlot at um, this lower emission rate until they were like 72 kilograms, which is kind of the average of uh, feeder lambs and then lambs leaving the feedlots. And we got a value of about 15 kilos of CO2 equivalent per kilo of lamb um, across feeding at a range operation and then bringing it onto a feedlot and just looking at market lambs in particular um, rather than all the sheep that would be sold from the range operation. So, I mean, kind of the take home with that is that, um, you know, the feedlots are more efficient in terms of, um, you know, just receiving lamb, feeding them out. Um, but it also is, is a different comparison in that they don't have all the other inputs in the, uh, the maternal flock that's associated with um, those emissions. Sure, absolutely. So from these results, did you recognize any maybe key areas where emissions could be reduced uh, that would likely also not have a significant impact on lamb output from the operations? Yeah, that's a good question, Jake. Um, I think it is challenging to separate out some of these things that a farm could do from their lamb output. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, things that are a little bit separated would be, for example, like manure management. Um, you know, some farms would have more stored manure versus other ways of handling manure um, that could make a difference. Um, farm purchases, I guess you could argue if you could create more of your feed resources from your own farm, perhaps you could lower emissions a little bit, but you're not going to move the needle a whole lot with that one, I don't think. Um, marketing size of lambs, which Aaron mentioned already, would be you know something to consider if you have different markets available to you. Um, because if you market a lamb at a larger size, you're going to have dilute the, you know, the use and her, the whole system's overhead quite a bit with more pounds of lamb to sell. But, you know, that's not something that people can move too, too much if that's what their market is. Like if the only, the best market for you are selling small lambs, you know, you're not going to make that change and it'd be economically rewarding for you. Um, fuel use, certainly, um, uh, we'll talk about that, I think a little later, but, um, you know, relying on uh, perhaps alternative energy sources could be, you know, more of a wave of a future thing. Um, some of that's available to us now, but it'll certainly become more and more available in the future, and that'll help move the lino a little bit. And then fertilizer use, you know, maybe more critical use of fertilizer when it's needed to be used. Um, you know, doing a little more soil testing, not overusing fertilizers, or something that maybe isn't quite as linked to lamb output that a person could consider. Were there any surprises in your findings? I think one of the one of the things I found surprising, really overall, is how relatively similar farms were. We expected maybe when we did this study that we would see, you know, since uh, production efficiency is pretty well linked to you know greenhouse gas emissions, I expected those farms with higher levels of productivity to be you know way different than 
uh, ones with lower productivity, like the extensive operations, but they really weren't as different as we expected. They were different, but, but maybe 20%. So that's not a big difference. Um, and so that's part of it. I, I guess I was also kind of surprised that fuel use on these farms, even though it was used for very different things, was not that different. For example, like, you know, for the intensive operations, since they have more crop production, they would have more diesel fuel used for that. But then you look at the range operations of the West, they're still using a reasonable amount of fuel because they're transporting sheep from, you know, different climate um, grazing areas uh, quite a bit too. So they kind of balance each other out. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, Dr. Rechtenwald, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned about how internationally uh, emissions have been calculated many different ways. And so I am wondering, when you measured emissions in this project, did you use a, a single way of estimating that, or did you try you know, multiple different models? Uh, we based the main results from using NRC methods uh, to estimate like their nutritional requirements, and um, from that, we could calculate the enteric emissions and manure and uh, methane and manure nitrous oxide emissions from that. So we used um, you know, uh, sort of up-to-date energy and protein requirement standards. Uh, we also used um, the IPCC methods that have um, been used in various studies as well. Um, so we use those to estimate nutritional requirements as well. So there were kind of some subtle differences in the factors that are included in those energy and protein estimates, like differences in how they determine activity or um, the requirements for the number of lambs or the growth rates, um, those energy requirements. So there's some kind of subtle differences, but um, we did find significant differences then between those two methods when we were estimating the amount of enteric um, methane emissions from breeding ewes and also in nitrogen excretion by the breeding ewes. Um, but they're numerically similar when we did that, um, when we then used the total greenhouse gas values per kilogram of lamb. So there's some kind of differences between the estimates, but um, when you look at it then on in terms of total farm emissions, some of the differences between the methodology um, blurs. Uh, they were, however, higher than the IPCC standards because they have uh, just standard values that are used for um, enteric emissions by animals. And they just set it at like nine kilos of enteric uh, methane per animal per year. And we did find in our estimates, but when we actually used the energy and protein requirements, it showed us that the USUs had higher values. Um, so they're bigger and more productive, perhaps, than the global average. So yeah, we did find that we should definitely account for some of this when we do the emissions estimates um, rather than using just inventory values. Sure. How about... Uh... From last last month's episode with Dr. Mitlerner, uh, he talked a little bit about GWP star. Uh, I was interested if you guys did any calculations of, of GWP star uh, and how well, you know maybe those calculations potentially differed if you had used GWP one hundred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we did use GWP one hundred for all of our calculations, um, but we did. Um, Part of this was we, we we made the assumption, let's say 
that um, all farms had been uh, producing in the same way 20 years ago as they are today. And when we make that assumption, um, we can think about how it might change um, emissions in terms of GWP star. So um, what happens is we, we standardize the emissions of methane and nitrous oxide to that of CO2 because it's sort of the prevalent greenhouse gas. So we multiply each of those gases by their warming potential in relation to CO2. So like a gram of methane produces the same warming over 100 years as 27 grams of CO2, or like it's, it's 27 times more potent in terms of its warming impact. Um, but at the end of 100 years, we can also think that, well, CO2 is still there causing warming, but now we know, you know, methane is a short-lived climate pollutant. So it is only in the atmosphere for like 12 years or so before it breaks down. So it's not actually there at the end to create warming in 100 years from now, like CO2 would be. It just has, so it has a really strong warming effect in those 12 years and then a fairly minor impact after that. And that's what that new metric GWP star takes into account is those warming projections of recent to further out emissions. Essentially, if, if there are no new or increased methane emissions from 20 years ago, the warming factor for methane is decreased compared to the GWP 100 value. So um, when we did those, that new, um, when we use that new metric, GWP star, we saw an average reduction of total emissions about 50%, in half the emissions by 50%. And the most dramatic reduction was on the extensive systems because when you um, lower the value of the warming impact of methane, then most of those extensive systems were mainly methane emissions. So we saw the greatest impact in reduction on those systems compared to the intensive ones. Um, so that brought the emission values down to like five or six kilos of CO2 equivalent um, per kilogram of live weight that was sold. Okay, that's really interesting, yeah. So how do the results from this project and and from US sheep operations, how do they differ from estimates maybe from the cattle side of the industry? Yeah, if you were to uh, look at that compared to the beef industry, part of the, you want to call the cattle industry, including dairy cattle, beef cattle, um, it's not so different than the beef industry in many ways. Uh, the range you see in the beef industry would be somewhere in the range of 17 to 24 grams of CO2 equivalent per unit live weight, where um, in the U.S., our sheep, uh, well, values in the U.S. are averaging around 12. Um, we might be a little lower than that, pretty similar to that with sheep overall. Dairy, on the other hand, dairy beef, if you take dairy beef, it would seem like that would be that would be estimated lower because part of the maternal overhead of the dairy industry is producing milk. So if you partition out that milk component, it makes the beef, it makes the beef seem somewhat more efficient, you could argue, in a global production sense. So, you know, Dairy beef seems like a more efficient system, mostly for that reason. Um, you could say argue the same thing here with you know, like sheep in the United States versus um, in New Zealand. In New Zealand, a greater proportion of their income and of their product actually would come from wool in many cases. So they kind of partition that part out. So they appear to be more efficient because they've got multiple products. 
in our Western sheep production systems where we are growing fine wool, we see some of the same things. If we allocate that principle just to meat, that does make them more efficient in terms of meat production because they've got a couple products, especially of economic significance, to include. Um, the sources are very similar. You know, most of the source in beef is going to be enteric methane, just like in sheep. Um, the more extensive operations, proportionally more than the more intensive ones in terms of, you know, how much it's enteric. Is enteric. Um, and then one big difference if you talk globally about cattle is the dairy industry, about half their emissions comes from manure. Um, that isn't the case in the beef, the pure, you know, beef industry or the sheep industry. So um, their mitigation strategies would be very different focus more on manure handling. So those are pretty some important differences. You know, one more thing to add is in sheep, you know, we have greater productivity, reproductive efficiency, certainly than in cattle overall, especially in our more intensive systems. However, you know, the carcass yield of these animals might be a little lower um, of our sheep, especially if they're killed at young ages. So that's kind of a counterbalancing factor. But, you know, we definitely have greater production efficiency um, compared to beef, but you know, some there's some counterbalancing factors that don't make it seem quite as big of a difference. So, thinking about our listeners who may be sheep producers, well, you know, what are some of the major takeaways from this project that you've conducted that uh, those operators, sheep sheep uh, producers in the U.S., can go ahead and take and apply in their own production schemes? Well. Jake, they're not as different than the, some of the recommendations that we'd make just to improve production efficiency of the national flock. They kind of go hand in hand here. So basically, you know, if you can improve your animal health and productivity, you're definitely going to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that's challenging to do in some production systems, but I think an incremental change in that can make a pretty big difference. Even a small change translates into a pretty big difference. And it'll also result in greater profitability for your flock. So it's all, you know, kind of goes all together in a nice way. Um, there are relatively few emissions related to um, finishing lambs. Um, so the difference in emission value of a light versus heavyweight lamb is pretty significant. So if you sell your lambs at heavier weights, that sounds like, you know, a good thing, right? Because you're going to have more product. However, have to keep in mind that producing lambs beyond their optimal slaughter point is also going to be detrimental. So you have to find that right slaughter point for the industry, both in terms of product quality, so not getting lambs overly fat, but getting them big enough. Um, and to the point where if they're overly fat, you're going to use a lot of feed resources to create fat, which isn't like a economically, you know, can hurt our industry. So I'd say balancing slaughter size with consumer demand is, you know, a pretty big part of this as well. Sure. So taking a step back, I'd like to ask uh, one of you to, to, you know, briefly, if greenhouse gas or carbon sequestration can be accounted for, and if we can at some point, how that helps us understand kind of that whole footprint of the sheep industry? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that's being investigated pretty heavily currently. Um, right now, we can't account for carbon sequestration in, in our emissions estimates right now. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of work that's been done that assumes what a potential amount might be that's being sequestered. Um, and that will incorporate it 
into the life cycle analysis and the total emissions. Um, but really getting a good estimate of the soil organic carbon change over time is, is very difficult. And then it's even more so difficult to predict it, what it would be um, without really intensive sampling. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that like the New Zealand tax is coming up, uh, you know, producers there are allowed to account for trees on the property. You know, that's a little more solidified, the research on that. Um, but, you know, not yet soil carbon changes. So that's something kind of around the globe that is being investigated. Everybody knows it should be part of the equation, but the science really continues to, to grow on that topic um, in terms of how that carbon sequestration, how much is occurring, and then the permanence of it as well. Sure, absolutely. Um, so they're difficult. So we'd, we'd love to be able to add those into the estimates in the future. And that's something that I hope some of the specific research studies will be addressing when it comes to um, factoring that into these emissions estimates. Um, in some of those, those cases where they have done some assumptions, you know, it, it, adding that in can even come close to neutralizing the emissions from the animals themselves. So, um, you know, it's really exciting if, if that's a potential that maybe, you know, most likely in the situation where the field is, you know, transitioning from maybe a, a conventionally tilled area to then like a perennial grassland, you know, sometimes um, it has to be a pretty big change in magnitude of, of land use in order to account for that. But um, there's also, you know, a relative scale of making some management changes and then allowing sequestration to occur. And then, um, you know, how, how we can measure that is going to be a challenge in the future. Sure. But it sounds like that's in, in the works. Yeah. Were there any further unanswered questions from this research uh, that you believe probably uh, need or, or maybe need to be investigated further? Yeah. Um, so Richard mentioned earlier, that, you know, specifically for sheep, we we don't know if the if dietary changes like in a feedlot situation or a highly concentrated diet has an effect on enteric methane emission. Um, right now, we, we calculate based off of intake, and we don't make any adjustments based off of the dietary composition. Um, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why, and the first really is that there hasn't been a lot of work so far in measuring enteric emissions on sheep-fed concentrated diets. Um, really, most of this work is forage-based diets and also mature sheep. Um, so it's difficult to make any conclusions. There just hasn't been the work done yet. There does appear that there may be some potential reduction um, with highly concentrated diets, but the literature is kind of far from drawing conclusions at this point. Um, it is documented in cattle, however, um, and we uh, reduce the enteric emissions by about half when those animals are fed a highly concentrated diet, so like on a feedlot. So, um, we just aren't unclear about sheep. Um, sheep are also, you know, the second reason is that sheep are different than cattle. You know, they have the feed passes through the rumen much more quickly. Their digestive capacity and fermentation profiles are different. You know, they have these differences in how they digest feed. And so we would expect some differences in how they would form enteric methane in relation to the type of diet, but uh, we need to elucidate that difference further. Um, there's also something, a question that is an interesting one to pursue is that 
uh, we do know that tannins, it's um, a secondary plant compound, other things that can reduce enteric methane emissions. And, you know, some of those can be pretty high in some areas of the U.S., like especially in, in range grazing. And that might imp impact um, the methane production as well. But again, that one hasn't been looked into yet, but it could be studied further. That's interesting. Well, this has been great. Uh, the results of this project uh, are really interesting, and I'm really appreciative of, of you both being willing to come on and share it. I, I have just one more question, uh, and admittedly, it maybe gets a little philosophical. Uh, but, the, you know, the issue with greenhouse gas emissions uh, it has obviously a, a big social or political component uh, to it that, you know, many of the other sheep industry topics that we discuss don't. Some do, but, you know, certainly maybe not to this scale. Uh, and it clearly it extends beyond just the sheep industry and, and even agriculture in general. Uh, U.S. sheep production, even though it's a small slice of the pie, you know, given the results of this project and your knowledge of the industry as a whole, do you see any opportunities or major pitfalls, for that matter, that the U.S. industry should take advantage of or avoid over the next decade as this topic continues to persist and, and maybe even becomes bigger? I guess I would kind of back off just a little bit and, and mention that, yes, we're interested in understanding the carbon footprint. And that's one part of, of the picture when we look at, you know, environmental impact of an industry. Um, and also, but there are many, um, you know, services that sheep provide for the environment that aren't accounted for. And I think we need to do a better job of really, you know, elucidating those and making sure people understand like the impact that sheep that properly managed grazing can have on biodiversity and, and protecting watersheds versus alternative ways of protecting these watersheds. Um, also has a social impact of, you know, providing, uh, livelihoods for, for people and food security. Um, they're, they're all different and very important things to measure, but are difficult to do so. Also, you know, the impact of grazing and reducing fire loads and fuel, fuel loads in the West is important to, to understand and appreciate and isn't fully accounted for in a, in, a, in a system like this, looking at just a couple numbers. It's really easy to put numbers on a few things and compare, you know, what's a kilo of sheep how much CO2 is, you know, for a kilo of sheep versus meat versus a kilo of beef or some other thing. But you need to understand the other economic or, excuse me, ecological and environmental ramifications of producing that product. And there's some really good things that sheep do for the environment that aren't captured in that number. So, and just final, one more thing is just in any of these agricultural systems, just the protection that agricultural has from development and um, is important in providing food for the country and maintaining plant and animal life in addition to enhancing soil carbon. And those are things that we need to do a better job of understanding. And we're, you know, that research is happening, albeit a little bit slowly, but that'll be better appreciated, I think, as we move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, with that, uh, I want to say again, thank you both very much uh, for joining me today and, and sharing your results. I really appreciate uh, you taking this time to, 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 to discuss with not just me, but the industry and our listeners about what you're working on and what you found. I think it's really going to have a major impact, positive impact uh, on our industry going forward. So thank you very much. 
yeah, thanks for giving us this opportunity, Jake, to talk about her work. Yeah, thank you, Jake. Sure. Listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Research Update Podcast. And as always, I kindly request you share it on your social media pages or in conversation uh, to help us broaden our reach to even more U.S. sheep enthusiasts. Until next time, eat lamb, wear wool, and remember that uh, what's best for your bottom line can also be good for the environment. Sounds pretty sustainable to me. Have a nice day.